Would you uh, pray with me as we begin this morning? Lord, you are wonderful in your love for us, and we give you praise and thanks for your grace. And you've heard it in our prayers, in our songs, you've heard it in our conversations, in our hearts, and now we want to obey your word and cast our cares on you and ask of you even more. And we don't do this, God, because you are lacking in any way in your fullness toward us, but because we would want to give you glory by making it known publicly what a trustworthy and reliable God that you are. And so, Father, we pray for the nations in the world. We prayed for the country of Bangladesh. And we ask for strength for those new believers who have left the Hindu religion to, to follow you, the one true God. And God, we ask you to give leadership to these fledgling churches there. That may they grow deep roots into your word. And we pray also for the country of Bhutan that you would once again open the doors to a Christian witness there. That you would strengthen the, the, the Christians that are present even now as they're ministering and, and, and being harassed. God, well, you'd raise up more in that country to share the gospel with their neighbors. And God, we turn to our own country and we pray for those in authority. They tell us it's good for, those, for us as the church to pray, and so we will. And we think of those that have a large influence in our culture. We pray for the leaders at home. And we ask that you would help husbands and fathers to lead their families with grace, with patience, with love. We ask that you would help wives and mothers to lead with sensitivity, with endurance, and with hope. And we pray for the parents in our country that they would teach their children who God is and how they should submit their lives to him. And Father, we, we thank you and praise you also for other local churches in our area, that we're not the only church that, that loves you, that preaches the gospel each week. And we thank you and we praise you for Summit Christian Fellowship in Tacoma. We thank you for the faithfulness to this, your faithfulness to this church family. And we ask for wisdom for their church as they reach out to their neighborhoods with the gospel. Give them peace and strength as a church to continue to serve you faithfully. And we pray for their pastors, Ben Sandsburn and Ryan Beardsley, and for their elders, Ryan Knight and Josh Breffel and Craig Black and Michael Sandberg. You give them insight and patience as they shepherd their flock. May you be glorified in their midst this morning. Father, I also pray for our church family. I thank you for them. Thank you for your love and your care for one another in obedience to your word. We thank you for the mothers that make up our church family. May they feel love this morning, whether they've had children in themselves or helped mother children in, the, in this church or in the neighborhood. And we pray also for grandmothers and stepmothers and mothers-in-laws. They all have a ministry in mothering. We pray for comfort for those who've lost their mothers. You give them grace today. We do pray for our church family. I ask that our church, that we would have unity amid diversity, that we can love one another with which we have nothing in common with. God, I ask that you would gift our church with more faithful elders that would serve this church family. I ask for more faithful deacons that would desire to serve. I ask that you would help us to have a hunger for studying your word. 
Please give our church transparent and meaningful relationships that would be normal so that continuing to be anonymous would be strange. May we open our lives to one another. I ask that you would help us to work hard at helping others in our church to follow you. That we would grow more at encouraging one another and and not so quick to dismiss people. God, I ask that our, our financial giving would be faithful and that it would be joyful and consistent and sacrificial in supporting this local church. I pray that our members would be good and do good in their workplaces this week that they would honor you as they go into the world. Father, we do pray for Pastor Ryan as he discerns his future. Give him and Carly grace and strength to wait upon you for the next steps. May they trust in you. May they rely on you. And Father, we... I know there's many here that think back on the last week and the trials that they've endured. And some have been brought very low some with physical pain and mental weariness, some others who've suffered greatly with loss. And yet there is one, one person we can count on in every step and every moment of pain and struggle. There is one who knows what we feel. There is one who who weeps with us who has endured much worse than we've ever thought. And that's our Savior, Jesus. And so we don't lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we ask you would give us faith to believe in you. When more storms come this week, let us not doubt in you, our great captain. Even though winds and waves assault us, May we find our perfect peace and rest in you alone. You are the master over all the winds and waves. So we ask, we beg that we'd help help us to trust in you in all those storms. And now, Father, we pray that we as a church would have a deep commitment to your word. Not only individually, but also corporately as the gathered congregation that we would ground all that we do and say in the Bible. And I pray that as a church, our delight would be in the law of the Lord and that we'd meditate on its truths together, day by day, week by week, service by service. And may we learn now together as your word is preached. For we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. We are turning our attention back to the Gospel of Luke. So as we begin, once you find a Bible there, you either have one that you brought or most of you have a smartphone. So turn to Luke chapter 10. 
As was mentioned at the beginning, Pastor Ryan said it's been well over a month since we've been in the Gospel of Luke. And we paused to, to look at the book of Jonah for four weeks, and then two weeks I, I wasn't in the pulpit. And now this morning we venture back into the second half of the Gospel of Luke. And just as chapter 9 began with Jesus sending out, or it, not began, but it's in the chapter 9, is sending out the 12 disciples, chapter 10 begins again with sending out more disciples. This time the number is 72, and we'll look at that. The, the 12 disciples in chapter 9 represented uh, the, the inner circle of his followers. But Jesus had gathered a large number of followers by this time, and, and he's going to send them now in this chapter on a specific task. And in, in Luke's gospel, we have been following Jesus' journey from Galilee down through Samaria, and now the journey heads towards Jerusalem. And Pastor Ryan read for us early, Jesus then sets his face towards Jerusalem because that is where salvation will come for all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. He sets his face towards the cross now. The entire journey seems to be taking place with such urgency and and here in this passage, it's no different. There are two themes that rise to the surface when you read Luke chapter 10 through Luke chapter 19. And, and I would recommend that you do this. If you haven't been regularly doing it, get back into the practice of adding this into your Bible reading, reading through Luke, reading through the passages before they're preached so that you come prepared to hear God's word preached. You've, you've saturated yourself in God's word. And as you read Luke 10 through 19, you see a repeated theme that happens of the conflict with the Pharisees that Jesus has and, and the meaning, the description of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. In the next nine chapters of Luke, these two themes develop and they intensify. And Jesus will teach us what being his disciple looks like to follow him. And, he, and then he repeatedly warns the, the, the Pharisees to repent and, and discusses what's required for a person to enter the kingdom of God. And what I found this week as I was reading again the second half of Luke is the amazing patience of Jesus. He's so much different than I am. I would have given up and just left. But Jesus is so patient with people. Over and over again, he explains the kingdom and he offers entrance to the kingdom. And it's astounding. And the consequences, you read this in the second half of, of Luke's gospel, the consequences of Israel's rejection of him would be grave and far-reaching, even in the world. And, and subsequent history shows us, but the consequences in the world to come would be immeasurable. And so we, we turn the corner in chapter 10, and Jesus sends more, more messengers. He sends more out on this amazing mission to spread the gospel. So here's the main idea. It's really, really short. Christ's mission to the world is unstoppable. Christ's mission to the world is unstoppable. E.M. Bounds, I read him a number of years ago. He writes on prayer, and he said this, men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for faithful men. Men are God's method. Men, men and women, the whole. And the mission of God is to reach the world with the gospel, and God isn't done. If he was done we wouldn't be here. So if we're still here, friends, the mission is a go, all right? That is the thrust of what we're gonna see here in these 24 verses. In our last study in Luke's gospel, at the end of chapter nine, Jesus would address the would-be disciples. They would work for the proclamation of the kingdom of God. 
And the task would be costly. It would be urgent. And it would require perseverance. That's me, isn't it? Sorry, I keep messing with it. Did you say shave your beard? Oh, I'd look like a child. Where was I at? The task, the task of, uh, of these disciples would be costly and, and risky. And it would require perseverance. And Jesus commissions a larger group now to join the, the 12. And so if Christ's mission to the world is still happening, it, it is unstoppable. And so what are we doing? To think through that, what are we doing now? The gospel has far-reaching consequences for good, that those who trust in Christ and, and for trouble, that those who reject him. And so we're going to look at the first 24 verses of Luke chapter 10 this morning. And there are three points I want you to notice. First, following Jesus brings eternal peace. Rejecting Jesus, number two, rejecting Jesus brings endless terror. And third, remembering Jesus brings everlasting joy. So let's dive in here, Luke chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, we do have a, if you don't have a Bible, there's a rack of Bibles in the back. You're welcome to go get one. Please take it. Um, if you're new to looking at the Bible, the, the big numbers or the chapter numbers or small numbers of the verse numbers, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read verses one through nine now. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. And whatever house you enter... First say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace, th this means a peaceful man, just so you know. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever, what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. On Tuesday, if you're doing the Bible reading with us as a church, you, in the plan, we came across uh, Moses selecting 70 elders out of Numbers chapter 11. And that might have been what Luke has in mind here. But, but I believe uh, the most likely to stronger influence is the report of the 70 nations in Genesis 10. It's 70 in the Hebrew text and 72 in the Greek text, so the ESV translation of 72, I believe, is right in line. Earlier in chapter 9, the 12 are sent and 12 stood for the mission to Israel, and now the 72 symbolize the proclamation of the gospel to the rest of the world. And I believe this is another hint in Luke's gospel of the global nature of the mission of Jesus. The gospel is for the world, for the Gentiles. It's going out into the world. And this harvest imagery in verse 2 gives us a picture of God gathering his people into the kingdom to secure them for the judgment to come. And there's a harvest. But Jesus says, what does it say about the harvest here? This is a lack of workers and what to do in the face of this need. And Jesus' simplicity is striking. He says, we should pray. Nothing fanciful or multi-layered Jesus doesn't give us 10 steps to reverse the trend. He simply says, ask God to reverse the trend. 
ask God to give more laborers, more workers. And I love this. And we tend to, in the church or in ministry, make things much more difficult than it needs to be. More harder than it needs to be. We, we, and Jesus says, you need to pray. That's the answer. We need to ask God for more workers to go out into the harvest. Something so simple and yet incredible. And, and who are we to pray to but to the Lord of the harvest? That's the title of God that represents his role as judge. The Lord of the harvest is the judge of the unsaved who will stand before him in the last day and be condemned to hell. And we are to pray to him to send more workers to lovingly warn people so that they can be part of the, the harvest to eternal glory. And friends, it says it's his harvest. And that truly is a relief. It doesn't depend on us. We are not the lords of the harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. We are the laborers. We are the workers. And it's interesting and significant that Jesus does not command the disciples to pray for the lost, although it's certainly appropriate. Their first prayer was to be for the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. It's like in the book of Acts when the Lord met with them in the upper room and he says now you stay here and you pray and you don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit comes and then he'll send you out but for the moment don't do anything just pray and he says to us here to pray and he doesn't say pray for the lost he doesn't say that it says pray for laborers and you can sit around and say Lord I want you to save my old aunt she really needs you Lord save my husband Save my neighbor. Save my, my close friend. And, and you just keep saying to yourself, well, they're not getting saved. I'll just keep praying. And then all of a sudden you start to pray this way. Lord, please send someone to reach my aunt. Send someone to, to share the gospel with my neighbor. And, and you pray that way for a while. And pretty soon you say to yourself, maybe I should go. Maybe I should be the one to share the gospel with them. You see, if all we're doing is praying for the person to be saved, you can, you can keep them at arm's length. You can picture them in your imagination what it would be like, and, and you can be distant from them. But as soon as you start praying for the Lord to send someone, you're going to pretty soon feel like maybe the person that the Lord should send is you. And it leads you from praying to involvement, to, to sharing the gospel with them. And this is the pattern the Lord uses here. And do you see it? This is, the Lord commands the disciples to pray, and then he sends them out to do the work. So in a, in a very, very real sense here, friends, they were the answer to their prayers. And so it is with us. We must pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, and we must be prepared to be the answer to those prayers. There, there's no lack of harvest, friends. Jesus doesn't say that we need more harvest. He says the harvest is there. There is a lack, a shortage of laborers, and so we need to pray. And then in verse 3, any Christian who's willing to follow Jesus must be prepared to suffer. He says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. 
And ministering in this world for Christ means that we'll be vulnerable as lambs before wolves. And the picture of a lamb was regular for God's people. They were sent out and would, would face trouble, but their mission, God wouldn't ignore them in that. In Ezekiel 34, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, they have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. God says, me, myself, the, the great shepherd of the sheep, I will rescue them and protect them. And so the risk is great as we go out into the world, but survival is possible. And Jesus is sending them out to hostile people. But they're not alone. And their job is to take the good news to the wolves, who by God's grace will turn them into lambs. And at the same time, all of Christ's servants, we, we need to seek to live at peace with other men as far as possible by us. Some Christians seem to believe that the only measure of their loyalty as a disciple of Jesus is how much hostility they can stir up with people. But that's not our calling. We're on a mission of peace. And Jesus' instruction here in verse 4, and if it stuck out to you, it's not a step-by-step -step manual for modern-day missions. These instructions were a specific place and a specific time. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. And there's an urgency to his directions. The urgency in verse 4 is that the effect would, would be to force the town people that they would come in to a decision as to what they're going to do with the message. If these men and women sent had enough money and supplies to pick and choose where they wanted to stay, it would be of no spiritual implication. But if the people were faced with poor, destitute messengers claiming to be the Messiah's messengers, they would be forced to make a decision to entertain them, to listen to their message, accepting them into their lives, or to reject them. And so Jesus is doing this, I think, very forcefully, so that they were forced to choose. Are you going to listen to this message? These people in the towns couldn't sit on the fence any longer. They had to choose. And, and these messengers are not offering a, a new religious option that would have a small effect in their lives. No, they're holding out the last chance they have to, to turn away from their flight against the Savior and accept God's way of peace. These, these messengers were not on some sort of vacation. This wasn't a, a casual or a social visitation. And he says, he says here, greet no one on the road. And that would be in, incredibly difficult during this culture and this time. But it's, it's to be evident there of the urgency of this message. They were not tourists on a holiday. They were on a mission with eternal significance. And now look at verses 5 and 6. See, by this point in the Gospel of Luke, we, we learn the phrase, peace be to you. That's shorthand for the Gospel. We read it of Zechariah in chapter 1, and John the Baptist earlier when he goes before the Lord to prepare the way. And the, the preparation involves giving knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of sins. And this forgiveness will guide our feet into the way of peace. And so this peace is salvation, and peace comes through forgiveness of sins. And if you remember, it's been weeks now, earlier in chapter 7 when Jesus speaks to the sinful woman and he confirms the understanding of this peace and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the peace 
that Jesus offers is not, not the end to the global wars or relational conflict. No, he's later going to say in chapter 12, do, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So no, it, it isn't this horizontal peace that he's talking about. This is vertical peace with God. And this peace that, that Luke mentions here in his gospel is peace with God, which comes through Jesus Christ, who brings the forgiveness of sins. And so their mission was to speak the gospel prayerfully and fearlessly and urgently so that they would have peace. And then he says in, in verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide for the labor deserves as wages. Do not go from house to house. You know, a ministry worker, a pastor, a missionary is worthy of his wages as he preaches and teaches the gospel. Paul mentions this phrase here in his epistle, 1 Timothy 5. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, and he's quoting the Old Testament, you shall not muzzle an ox who treads out the grain, and therefore, and, and the labor deserves his wages. So he quotes Jesus. So it's written here in Luke's gospel and in 1 Timothy because you should understand, congregation, that you should pray your pre pay your preachers. If you want someone like me to stand here and talk to you like this from God's word, the church then needs to make it possible for me to prepare each week to feast on God's word and to present God's word. And by God's grace, historically this church has allowed that to happen. For me to work full time in preaching and teaching of God's word. But just so you know, there's other churches that haven't gotten to that point yet. Even though I don't believe that. In fact, I was on the phone with a friend from college, 20 years we've known each other. And he's now coming back into the ministry again, and he's looking for some advice. We talked through the situation of him coming and serving uh, to the church and to preach, and he said this church is paying part-time, and I encouraged him on the phone. Brother, you need to teach the church what the scriptures say about this. So whether you would en enjoy the fruit of it, friend, perhaps the next guy will. And so, friends, we need to understand this as a congregation. We give so that the word of God can go out into the world. Because we see that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And so we are moved to give out of the abundance so that we can send out more laborers into the field. Friend, just so you know, this is why we have Zach Kispert on staff. I'm going to pick on him for a moment. So that he can learn about the role of a pastor, a shepherd, to be trained. But just so you know, friends, his ultimate destination and station of ministry may not be here at EBC. In fact, there's a good chance that we'll send him out to another church or plant another church. But because of your giving, your faithful giving, it allows us to do this so that we can send out more laborers into the field. And, and these things are only possible as the Lord leads his people to give sacrificially. And not just locally here, but to foreign fields. You know, it just thrilled me to see you, church family, respond and to give sacrificially to the burns. I mean, I don't know what the, the number is. I think we're approaching $25,000 that you as a church has given so that they can plant a church. 
so that more laborers can head out in Japan to preach the gospel. And that's the work that we are most interested in, the planting and growing of churches. Those are the ministries that we're going to support and rejoice in. And so Jesus is setting the stage, even here, for ministry workers. And then he gives more instructions of what to do in verses 8 and 9. He says, whatever city they were to enter, they were to eat what is put in front of them. I need to quote this verse in my house for my kids. No amens, moms and dads. Jesus said, eat. Never mind, I won't go there. That's not what he means here. Really, in in certain different cities they entered, they might have had different food laws, possibly, or customs. And he's saying, don't make that an issue. Don't complain. But eat. And how easy it could be to spend their time on different views of food, of ceremonial laws. But Jesus wants them focused. They need to keep the main thing the main thing. And what's the main thing, friends? Have we lost sight of that? Do you remember the main thing? Jesus and his gospel. Right? We're still here because Jesus' mission is not done yet. So we need to keep the main thing the main thing. If we're to go out into this world and share the gospel with our neighbors and our friends and our family, we cannot get tripped up with inconsequential things. And it's easy to spend hours and hours and hours of time talking about things that won't matter in eternity. Instead, these messengers, Jesus says, were to keep the main thing the main thing. And here, what he's going to say soon after is that Jesus is coming. There was an opportunity for salvation, a moment for decision. The kingdom is here, so the king is here. And the same is for us. We need to have the same urgency because Jesus is coming back. We don't know when or how, but we do know that he's coming back. And that's the main point. That's why there's urgency. Jesus is coming back. Jesus' first coming was one of invitation and preaching, but his second coming, friends, that's a whole different story. And so we can't get all hot and bothered with the world's foolishness. Jesus is coming back, and his second coming, he's coming to judge. And so we need to be about the message of preaching the gospel, because he's coming back, and rejecting Jesus will bring an endless amount of terror. And that's the second point here. So first we saw following Jesus brings eternal peace. Second, rejecting Jesus brings endless terror. Look at verse 10. Whenever you enter a town and do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet will we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to Chorazin. Woe to Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. 
When these messengers publicly wiped off the dust of the city that stuck to their shoes, they were indicating the awful significance and implications of rejection. And they were calling on people to see that they had an opportunity for salvation. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom is near. Behold, your king himself is in your midst, Jesus. And do you see the boldness in this message? They're willing to be blunt about God and their rejection of him. And we need to be the same. We must tell the truth that God is angry about sin. His judgment is near. There are many preachers that don't talk about sin and judgment, and they're doing no favors to their listeners. Any person who will not speak plainly with you about the state of your soul is really not a friend at all. If they're unwilling to tell you of the real dangers of your life in opposition to God, that there is a real hell and there's a real judgment coming, then they prove they don't care for you much at all. Those televangelists and TV care more about your money than your soul, friend. Don't listen to them. Turn it off. Real gospel preaching will tell you that there's a judgment for sin and there's a way of escape through Jesus Christ. And the city of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum had witnessed Jesus' mighty works and they were still unrepentant and unsaved. All three towns Jesus notes here are on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had been there in one way, shape, or form. His ministry had gone there. And he's saying, to much is given, much is required. These cities had enjoyed a privilege not shared by the Gentile cities, and therefore their punishment would be greater, Jesus says. And it's almost frightening to be favored by God and reject him. This would be unnerving to hear, right? To hear that Sodom would have it easier than you, he's saying. This is shocking. And Tyre and Sidon are mentioned, not because they get a pass on Judgment Day, but he says it's going to be less severe for them. These two city-states from the 8th century B.C., there were ports and great centers of trade and industry, possessing much wealth and power. Both cities were full of arrogance in their own achievements. And God did bring judgment on them for their pride. You can read that in Isaiah 23.9, and especially in Ezekiel 26-28. But these Jewish cities, he mentions, they looked for the Messiah, and they reject Jesus, and they reject his message. Woe to them. They would suffer greatly. And J.C. Ryle comments in this. He says, These declara- this declaration teach us that all will be judged according to their spiritual light and that from those who have most enjoyed the relig- religious privileges, most will be required. They teach us the exceeding hardness and unbelief in the human heart. It was possible to hear Christ preach and to see Christ's miracles and yet to remain unconverted. Jesus' task was not to simply teach people a new way of life. He isn't offering a new depth to spirituality. He's not even offering a get-out-of-jail card to enable them to go to heaven after death. That's not merely what he's doing. Jesus is offering life real life on earth and for all of eternity. Salvation isn't merely about leaving earth, but living here on earth, secure of your future, 
living for Christ. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the showdown with the forces of evil, and he's making his message clear to reject him now, or even to reject his messengers, was to reject God himself. And so, friend, I ask you, are you sure you want to reject this message? It won't turn out well for you. You can try to live your life outside of God. You could perhaps live the next 40, 50 years free of God and the church, and you can see what might happen in the end, but that's a big risk. Friend, I'm here to tell you, you do not want to meet God outside of Jesus Christ. If heaven is a real possibility for man, so is hell. And if you're not a Christian, we beg you to receive and believe in Jesus Christ. To consider Jesus, to think of his life and his words. And now consider your sin and the corruption in your heart. Is sin not real? Can you not discern it in your own heart this morning? Do not the thoughts of sin travel through your mind right now? Do you even need to look beyond your own thoughts to know the reality of sin? You can turn on the TV and watch the news and see sin displayed all around the world, but isn't your own heart enough evidence? You need to ask yourself, am I bothered by my sin? I know that you're not always bothered, but ask yourself, do I really have to work not to be bothered by my sin? How you press down the sense of guilt and shame in order to pursue more and more sin. And the work that goes into running from those thoughts is great. Aren't we bothered? Because at some deep level, we know that our sin is wrong. And wrong means something to you. Even if we don't know how we came to know it's wrong, we know it's wrong. And we know we shouldn't desire to do it. And when we let ourselves think about our sin, we feel bad about ourselves and feel disgusted with ourselves. We know we've done it. We know we've thought that way. Friends, do you know what that's called? It's called conviction. Don't smush down conviction. Don't push it aside in your mind. Conviction is God's grace to you. That conviction you're feeling is God's mercy for your soul in that moment. It's it's how God tells you personally that your sin displeases him. And you need to allow conviction to do its work in your heart and mind. Don't push away those thoughts. You need to sit with them, dwell with them. See, God is gracious to you by bringing them into your mind. 
You need to be convinced this morning of what you already know, that your sin is shameful and wrong. It makes you feel guilty before God. And the answer isn't to suppress your sin, but to ask this question, what can I do about it? What can I do with my sin? And perhaps you've tried to deal with your sin on your own. You're, you're trying to be a better person, to develop new habits, to try not to think about those sinful things, to not, to not embrace those, those wrong things. And, and you listen to self-help advice, to, to just try to think positive about yourself, and you're just going to keep trying, but, but you know the sin is still there. It, it won't leave you alone. And if you keep doing it on your own, friend, that's just works-based salvation. You, you work to try to save you. And no matter how many religious people tell you that's the way to go, that's furthering the condemn, condemnation to you. But friends, I want to offer you hope. A way to be free of the power and guilt of your sin. To let Christ pay for your sin. You can't pay for it. Believe that Jesus came to earth to live sinless and free so that he could die on the cross for your sins, those sins that you are embracing even this week, and confess that Jesus is the only way for salvation. Embrace the truth. Believe the truth that it's only through... Christ's perfect righteousness and death on the cross to satisfy the, the wrath of God do your sin. That's the only way you can be free. And very simply, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him, in him alone. And he will increasingly free you from sin and make you new. Don't reject this message, friends. Don't reject Jesus. See here in Luke 10, 16, rejection of these messengers was tantamount to rejection of Jesus, and rejection of Jesus was ultimately rejection of God. Friend, your rejection of faithful preaching that happens here each week is the same. You rejecting preaching is rejecting Jesus, rejecting peace, rejecting forgiveness, and finally rejecting God. Don't reject Jesus this morning. Turn to him in faith. Trust in Jesus alone. The last third point is for you, Christian. Third, we need to remember Jesus brings everlasting joy. Remembering Jesus brings everlasting joy. This passage this morning has moved from the positive to the negative, and now back to the positive. And the first was encouraging that Jesus' mission is exciting, getting the gospel out to the world. It's encouraging that God would even choose us to take the message to the world. It's amazing to think through. And the second point was, was grave and somber because there's many still that reject his message of peace and instead embrace the chaos in this world. But now we come to the last point here this morning, and it's joy. And how much do we need joy right now? Look at verse 17. 
The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to him, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Go back to verse 18 and 19. Does it remind you of anything? You remember back in your Bibles in Genesis 3, God promised the ultimate demise of Satan at the hand of Adam's race. And Jesus speaks of Satan's demise in John 12, 31 also. Some commentators argue that verse 18 refers to Satan's original fall in Isaiah 14, 12, but that incident really has nothing to do with the immediate context here of what Jesus says. Not sure what it believes. I believe the fall of Satan spoken of Jesus in verse 18, though, is possibly a prophetic vision of what's about to happen when Jesus dies on the cross and rises again. But also, Satan's fall as the gospel was preached by these messengers from house to house. See, Satan's demise was prophesied in the third chapter of Genesis, and his defeat would be accomplished at the cross. But if we come back and think in our minds, Genesis 3, we sometimes slide over the part of God's curse in the serpent and, and go right to verse 15. It speaks of the victorious man, the seed of the woman, fatally bruising the, the, the serpent's head. But in so doing, we, we miss the language in verse 14 of Genesis 3. It says, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And in Genesis, this implies that the serpent, the enemy, will experience ongoing reverses, defeats, and setbacks along the way. And I wonder, perhaps, that's what verse 19 in Luke 10, where that fits. It's the gospel proclaimed that Satan's defeat is declared. Every step on the path of declaring the gospel, the good news, we push back the darkness and the work of Satan in this world. The gospel proclamation is the key to reversing the work of Satan and his demons. We tread on serpents and scorpions over the power of the enemy when others hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. That's why sharing the gospel is the best work for you to do in this world. But we shouldn't rejoice in our work, right? Jesus corrects them. He says, rejoice in your salvation. You know, it's an amazing thing to be saved and to be called to serve the Lord here on earth. But it's even more amazing and wonderful to be able to, but but why we'll still here on earth, why living on earth, to be sure that we will live with God for all eternity. The Greek word for written here in verse 20 carries the, the understanding of being enrolled in the citizenship of a city. 
Friends, do you remember a time in your life, perhaps you got an acceptance letter for a job, or you got accepted into college? For us, I thought of this week, the, the, the moment we got our visas from Sweden, and we were accepted. And I remember the, the, the thrill of joy that, that our name was officially written down on the ledger of that country that we could officially move there. That our names were written down. And I think of that joy, though, in comparison of our names being written down in heaven. Friend, that joy is even more significant to know that. To know that as Christians, we're enrolled as citizens in the kingdom. There is no renewal. There's no expiration. There's no removal. You are secure with God. And so even, friend, if you feel homeless and on earth, you need to remind yourself this morning that you're a citizen of the kingdom. You're citizens of heaven. And our chief joy that Jesus corrects here should not be in our gifts and our experiences and opportunities to serve God. Our joy is that God accepted us in Jesus Christ and we will live forever with him. You know, there's a somber reminder of Jesus' words about this idea in Matthew's gospel in chapter 7. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And he says, I will declare them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, it's not in the work we do where our joy should be. It's that we're, we're secure in him. So we can't rely on our gifts or our successes Friends, we rely in Christ and rest in him. I mean, just think, to believe in the reality of heaven, but to journey through life with the uncertainty of whether you would ever arrive there, that would be of no joy. It would just be torture. But the disciples' joy is now matched by Jesus' joy. You see it in verse 21? He praises God for the results of the mission. And this verse is profoundly Trinitarian. We have the Son rejoicing in the Spirit, talking with the Father. William Barclay writes of the word joy. He says, this, this joy, which is a joy that leaps for joy, as it has been put, it, it is the joy of a climber who has reached the summit and who leaps for joy that the mountain path is conquered. Jesus is joyful for their salvation. Friends, Jesus is joyful at your salvation. Let that sink in. Jesus is not bothered here for the salvation that he would secure for his people. Jesus is not a reluctant savior. Jesus was not in heaven saying, way to go guys, you ruined creation. Now I got to come and fix it. Do you believe that? can't tell. You all have masks on. <laughs> He's not annoyed. He wasn't begrudged. He was willing and joyfully so to come and sacrifice himself for us. 
And now, here in this passage, he's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and thanking the Father for revealing himself to his children. And Jesus is is overflowing in joy here for the salvation of his children. The gospel has been revealed to them, to the little children. Sometimes this passage has been misconstrued and people might think that the gospel is only understood by those that are uneducated and it's hidden from the smart people. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, he's teaching us that those who are babies in their spirit, who have an open heart, who are humble, who are eager to hear, those are the ones who understand. It's the humble. Those who are prideful, those who think they can get to heaven on their own, the message is hidden. Can't you see how dangerous pride is, friends? God discriminates against the proud, but he acts in favor of the humble. And Jesus is overflowing in joy at the reality of his disciples' salvation. And instead of showering his grace in the religious leaders and the respectable people who had no interest in turning and submitting to the Savior, God was bringing his kingdom to the spiritual equivalent of little children, the immoral tax collectors, the uneducated fishermen, the experienced sinners who turn and listen and turn to Jesus in repentance. And then look at verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And verses like this make people chaff. This verse expresses the truth that only ones who can truly know God as their Father are those to whom Jesus reveals this otherwise hidden spiritual truth. Jesus made a similar statement in John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he says later in that chapter, six, verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Everyone, at some point, has struggled with these verses. I remember struggling to understand them myself. But what is clear in Scripture is that we are all spiritually blind and we're spiritually dead, unable to save ourselves. We would reject God over and over and over again in his gospel if he didn't act first. Paul says it clearly in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Just as a physically blind person cannot enjoy the beauty of Mount Rainier because he doesn't have the faculties, so the sinner doesn't understand the things of God without the Spirit of God. We are dependent on God to reveal his salvation to us because there's nothing in us that obligates God to reveal himself to us. Nothing. And if you fight against this doctrine, and most of us have at some point, I would suggest that it's because you have a too high view of man and you don't have a high enough view of God and his holiness. We have a too high view of ourselves, of man, that we feel like he's obligated to show us mercy and to show mercy equally to everyone. 
But scripture is clear that God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. He could have treated us as he treated the fallen angels and left us in our condemnation with no savior. Is God unfair because he condemned all the fallen angels to the abyss without any chance of salvation? Of course he's not. They rebelled and they have no claim on God's mercy. And the same is true of rebellious fallen man. In his holiness, God would be perfectly just to condemn the entire human race to hell. But he chose to show mercy to some, which is his prerogative. He is sovereign to do so. And we need to rejoice in that, friends. We are not God. So we don't know who he has chosen. And so we're called to go. But friend, if you know Christ this morning, Jesus says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So we need to praise God for his mercy. Christian, praise God for his mercy in showing you, revealing to you who he is and what Christ has done for you. Well, I need to end. When you think about the Lord's words back in verse 2, you have to ask yourself, do I pray for the harvest? Do I pray for workers? Do I regularly pray that God would send more laborers around the world? That he would raise up and send people? Let's be honest. We all pray for things that matter to us. I pray often for my kids because they matter greatly to me. I pray often for my wife because she matters a lot. I pray for you, church, because you matter a lot to me. If I get sick, I pray for my health because it matters to me. But the important question is, does the Lord's harvest matter enough for me to pray for it? Am I consumed in my time with the Lord to pray that he would send more? Friends, the task is still urgent. We don't know when Christ is coming back. And so we need to pray. But know this, friends, saving people doesn't rely upon you. Remember, this is the Lord's harvest, not yours. So don't dwell on your discouragement in evangelism. Don't dwell on all the failures you've had. Pray. God is the one who draws. God is the one who opens the eyes. God is the one who gives faith. And so trust him to do that work and pray for laborers. Does the gospel, here's another question, does the gospel cause you a sense of awe? Why or why not? How often in your week do you dwell and rehearse how God saved you? How God secured your salvation? And based on your personal practices of evangelism, would a non-Christian assume that God is active or God is apathetic in this world? 
You know, I, I recognize we're not all super evangelists. Some are gifted and more. Some are really extrovert, and they love talking to others. But as Christians, we're called, all of us, to take the gospel to the lost, to pray for laborers and to take the gospel. So, for, friends, pray for one another in this task. Encourage one another. Ask someone this week, how is your evangelism? And if they respond, it's not very good, pray with them. Pray for one another. Encourage one another in this. But in the midst of all of it, friends, keep following Jesus. Keep pointing people to Jesus. He's the answer, not us. Let's pray. God, we, we give you praise for the wonderful supply that you've made for us in our sins in Jesus Christ. We give you praise that the punishment we deserve for our self-regard and for all the messes that we've made in our relationship with you and with others has, has fallen upon Jesus Christ. Oh God, if only we would repent of our sins and turn to you. So God, would you cause the truth of your good news to weigh upon our hearts this morning? We pray that the hope that we can have in you would be heavy and would pull us toward you and away from the smaller things that entrap us in this world. Help us to be faithful stewards of your gospel. Help us to be bold to take the gospel to our world, to those that surround us. And God, we do pray that you would raise up more laborers. God, I pray that you would raise up laborers in our midst, that they would consider a career change. They would move from a very gospel-saturated America to a country that has very little or no gospel, that they would be the answer to our prayers. I pray for us as parents here, that you've tasked us with raising children, that you've gifted to us. And I ask that we would not hold on to them tightly and for our own joy we would raise them to be willing to go. And that as parents, we would pray to that end, even though that would be hard, that they would go as laborers into the harvest. Help us, God. Help us not to be so self-centered, self-focused as a church. So inwardly thinking that we are the only ones that matter as we live in a world, in a state, in a, in a city that desperately needs you. Help us to be willing to go. But help us to trust in you. Father, we know even in this passage that some of us really need to stay. 
and, and serve and pray and give. And I pray that we would be faithful to that task as well. God, we thank you so much for your word that teaches us and guides us and convicts us. And I pray that we wouldn't turn from that conviction, that we would embrace it, we would allow your work to happen in our hearts and cause us to love you more and to serve you better. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.